This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Quote, Let your bookcases and your shelves be your garden and your pleasure grounds. Pluck the fruit that grows therein. Gather the roses, the spices, and the myrrh. If your soul be satiate and weary, change from garden to garden, from furrow to furrow, from sight to sight. Then will your desire renew itself and your soul be satisfied with delight. End quote. And that quote is by Judah Ibn Tivin who was a Spanish Jew who made a living as a physician between the years of 1120 and 1190. So a 12th century Spanish Jew who was born in Granada, Spain, and in around 1120, and moved to France, where he later died in 11, around 1190 in Marseille. And he spent a significant amount of time in his life not only practicing medicine, but also translating Arabic works into Hebrew. Now, this is a very interesting niche area. At the time, it was very rare, which made his work very significant, because here you had two backgrounds, religious backgrounds, that were that, that were not linked. They were not linked by language. Arabic and Hebrew were not languages that, that meshed often, frequently, or in written or spoken word. So... The role that Judah Ibn Tibbin played at the time was incredibly important. And for those of you that are not familiar with translation as a as an activity, um, for anyone who has done it or had it done for them, as I have, or has ever even learned or tried to learn a new language, translation is very, very difficult. And a little aside here, we talk about translation versus interpretation, and the difference, technically speaking, is that translation is of written word and interpretation is of spoken word. So technically what we're talking about here for what Judah Ibn Tibbon did was translation. He translated text from one language to another. Interpretation, theoretically, is what is done every time you see two world leaders on the stage speaking to each other through, uh, we call them translators, but really they are interpreters because they are translating spoken word as opposed to written word. So an interesting little bit of trivia there for us. But again, going back to separate languages, you know that you know a lot of times terms don't match. There aren't equivalent words in certain languages from one to the next. And this is this is true even more so of languages that don't derive from the same origins. So French, Spanish, English, all Romance languages. They all derive from Latin. And as a result, they have common-ish foundations. And it makes it a little bit easier. The sentence structures are similar, but different. The characters are similar, but slightly different, with different accents maybe. And that means that there is a foundation upon which all these languages are built that make them a little bit easier to understand. Uh, Italian falls into that as well. But then when you go into, say, Southeast Asian languages, if you've ever heard somebody speaking Tagalog in the Philippines, you know that there is no equivalent to it 
as a common base with English. There couldn't be more different. But there is a fair, there is a similarity to Spanish. And that has to do with Spanish occupation of the Philippines back in the day and whatnot. But as you can see, as you start to translate between all the various combinations of languages, it gets very, very difficult. And so what Judah Ibn Tibbon was doing in the 12th century is quite remarkable when you think about it. Because he not only had to have a firm grasp of Hebrew, but he also had to have a firm grasp of Arabic in order to be able to do this. And to illustrate this point, I bring up two, two quick examples of where translation or, or interpretation can be very, very difficult. Um, the, the example that, that I recall from my days in high school studying French is the, the French term mon petit chou. And uh, mon petit chou means my little cabbage. And it's a term of endearment in French. When I speak the interpretation, rather, in English of that phrase, my little cabbage makes no sense to us. There is no English equivalent. We don't call people my little cabbage in English, in English-speaking countries. It's a very French thing. And again, French and English have a common background of Latin. So really what we're talking about here is two languages that don't diverge from one another all that long ago are built on similar characters and similar sentence structures, and yet still there are terms that do not translate well. Imagine how difficult it must have been for Tibbon in the 12th century to translate between Hebrew and Arabic. Nowadays we have online translation tools, we have thousands and thousands of texts that have been translated between various languages. You have things to bounce your translations off of. Is there an equivalent of this particular term that's been translated before that I can just take as opposed to having to figure it out? And Tibbet didn't have that kind of lexicon available to him to be able to do that. So the one example that I said, again, translating mon petit chou to my little cabbage in English, very strange. It sounds weird to us. We don't use that. I don't call my wife that. Nobody that I know calls their child that, even though it is a term of endearment. And it, it's a cute one. I mean, if we're being honest with each other, that's a, it's, a, it's a nice way to refer to somebody. And it has a nice ring to it. And the French use it quite often. We don't here in the United States. Another example going the other way would be translating something from English to another language. What do we often call people that we feel affection for? Adults even. We call them baby, especially men towards women. It's very common in the American vernacular to refer to their wife as or significant other as babe or baby. Love you, baby. Those types of things. That doesn't translate to a lot of other languages. And you can see why. If you, think, if you think about the term, you're calling an adult a baby. And a baby is a very specific thing in English, and it's a very specific thing in other languages as well. Much like, I don't call my wife a little cabbage because she's not a vegetable. I also, if I were in another country, might view it strangely, if English was not my first language, to hear a grown adult refer to another adult as baby. Here you can see very, very simplistic problems with interpretation and translation. Again, to serve only to highlight that what Tibbon was doing in the 12th century is quite remarkable. Now imagine that you're not doing that with simple two or three word phrases or single words. You're doing that with entire texts and the command of not only the language, but the syntax and the context of what you're translating, you, you must possess in order to be able to even perform or begin to perform the action. 
And that's why you see that there are so many corrections or reinterpretations of or alternative translations of texts as you go through life. Probably the most common of which is the Bible. If you look at the Bible, a lot of that was written in the spoken in the, the the language of Jesus, Aramaic, and written in Hebrew, and then translated through the years to. Um, and biblical scholars are probably screaming at their their podcast right now that I got something wrong in there. But suffice it to say, English wasn't Jesus's first language, nor was it many of the, or potentially any of the individuals who actually penned the Bible. But that's been translated into every language on the planet, and the idea that. Every single one of those has the exact correct interpretation of exactly what was said is is hard to believe. And that is a very, very common uh, problem with translations and interpretations. And you see multiple translations and interpretations of the same text many times. And it's no surprise then that in researching this particular quote, I have it written down as a version that I came across at some point in the past in my quote book, written one way. In researching this, I found that there are multiple other interpretations of this, multiple other translations of this, both in length and in wording. And from what I've seen online, there is but one potential original text that exists of this exact quote, and it is written in Hebrew, and it resides in Oxford in the, in the library, in the archives there. And this, you can imagine, being translated from Hebrew to... All the other languages, including English, that we now read it and I speak it in, there may have been something lost. So I chose this particular version, the one that I read to you just a few moments ago, and I'll read to you again here shortly, for both the closest thing to accuracy, taking a preponderance of the interpretations and going, okay, I think this is the most accurate in translation, and also the content, right? There might be a little bit more to this or a little bit less. This could, I could still have the wrong exact translation for this. And if there are any Hebrew scholars out there who would like to take a look at the original text, uh, I would be happy to send that to you and hear exactly how you translate it uh, from the original Hebrew to English today. But moving back to the quote itself, it comes from a letter. Well, I guess it's more than a letter uh, from Tibbon to his son. So Judah ibn Tibbon had a son named Samuel, and he wrote a letter, and again, I say it's a letter, but it's really more than that. It's what's called an ethical will, and he, he gave that to his son. He wrote that for his son to read, and that's where this quote originates. Now, an ethical will may not be a term that's familiar to you. It wasn't for me. So I checked it. I looked into it, and an ethical will is essentially a document that passes ethical guidance or values from one generation to the next. So in this case, you have a father writing an ethical will to his son to pass along ethical values from one generation to the next. And this is not something that we do all that commonly, although I will say it's not as rare as I had originally thought, as I pondered on the, on the thought of an ethical will, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, I found myself wondering why we don't do this anymore. And I think a lot of it is a lot of it gets passed down via stories and discussions and lessons and conversations. And we don't necessarily take the time to put it on paper or in print, so to speak. But clearly, Tibbon did that. And it's a neat concept, if you think about it. And because not only does it provide a 
list or a series of admonishments to the next generation to abide by certain virtues and certain principles. But it also creates an interesting time capsule of what was considered or what were considered virtues at the time. And perhaps we should do it more. But in essence, this is a father passing values on to his son. And even though we may not put it into writing as commonly as it may used to be in, the, in, in years past, certainly this information still gets passed down. That's not to say that we don't pass down virtues. Of course we do. It's one of the primary responsibilities of a parent is to raise a child to, that, that conforms well to society and, and carries with them certain virtues and principles that they apply throughout their life. So this absolutely happens. It just doesn't happen in the written sense of an ethical will as much as it does, it seems, in conversation. So I'm going to read the quote for you one more time and give you, now that you have the context of this, imagine this is a father writing to his son, passing along a virtue or a principle by which he hopes his son abides for his life. So here's the quote again. Quote, Let your bookcases and your shelves be your gardens and your pleasure grounds. Pluck the fruit that grows therein, gather the roses, the spices, and the myrrh. If your soul be satiate and weary, change from garden to garden, from furrow to furrow, from sight to sight. Then will your desire renew itself and your soul be satisfied with delight. End quote. And this is a beautiful quote for a number of reasons. It's, it's really neat to imagine somebody sitting down to write this back in the 12th century, father to son, to take the time to put pen to paper and to write something that to pass down these types of values. It's, it's beautiful in that regard. It's interesting to imagine the setting in which this was written. You know, a father sitting over some type of some type of table, some type of desk, some type of flat space where they were able to write probably with more of a, a, a quill style pen than we might today. Certainly not at a computer or anything of the sort. And take the time to pen this and, and give it to a child. And it sounds flowery. It sounds a little bit poetic even. It's, you can see the analogy to a garden. You can imagine that a bookshelf is a garden and that the individual shelves are the furrows or the rows where the, 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 the flowers or fruits or vegetables or nuts are being grown. And going to a different shelf in a specific spot is going to yield something slightly different than going to a different shelf in a different spot or a different place in the garden. So it's, it, it's, it's beautiful in that regard. It's got a natural beauty to it, and it flows nicely. So I appreciate the quote from, a, from an aesthetic perspective in that way. But actually, if you look a little bit more into the context of this quote, it's actually an admonishment, or rather it comes in the midst of an admonishment to Tibbins son. Now Samuel was not, at the time, living up to his father's expectations. Depending on when you when this was actually penned and put on paper, uh, Tibbin's son was preteen, maybe twelve years old at the time, and Tibbin is writing about how he has raised this child. He talks about uh, foregoing comforts to raise him, and that he has not, for the last twelve years of his son's life, been able to enjoy the comforts that someone without a child would, and. He's talk, he talks about building him this elaborate library and hopes that his son will learn from that library and that it has come at both great expense and great danger as he's traveled to seek out the various texts that make up this library. So he's done all of these things for his son and 
he says around this quote that Samuel is more or less squandering his mind and heart. He's been given a gift of a, of a bright mind and a kind heart. And he's not studying. He's not reading. He's not going to these texts. He's not going to these library, this library to draw from it, to, to enjoy the garden, as it were, to tie it back to the quote. And this sounds like a modern-day sitcom, right? The parent saying, I put a roof over your head, and as long as you live in this house, you'll live by my rules type of thing. It's that type of, of language to this. Now, this particular quote, for today is quite beautiful, quite poetic. But it's when you when you know that he is writing to a son who isn't living up to his paternal potential, then or a paternal expectation, as it were, then this becomes more of an admonishment. And in admonishments of a 12th century preteen child, we can find something that can challenge us today. There are all of these things that that Tibbin lays out for his son in this ethical will and challenges him. And again, by extension, he challenges us, you know, 900 years later to read broadly and deeply. And this is something we've talked about on this podcast before, reading broadly and deeply. There is a lot to be had in the world and a lot of it is captured beautifully in prose, in books. So the, the first of the two lessons that I draw from today's episode is to read broadly and deeply. That is what Tibbin wishes for his son, and I'm sure were Tibbin with us today, he would admonish us to do the same. Go to the libraries. Imagine having a library. There's a library five, six blocks from where I live. Imagine were Tibbin to see that a library like that existed in a neighborhood, and how surprised he would be that there would not be a line around the block of every member of that community waiting to get in and have their turn at that library, to pluck from that garden the fruit that lies therein. So in addition to the read and tend to and pick from the garden of your library or your community's library or your city's library, whatever it may be, any of the many things that are therein, many things can grow in a garden just as many books can be present in a library. And each of those can yield a different type of fruit and therefore a different type of change or benefit to the consumer. So in addition to that admonishment to read and tend to and pick from the garden, I think the other piece to take from this might be the idea or the concept of an ethical will. This is something that seems to have been lost to history, or at least the written version of it. Not entirely, but I doubt that you've written one. I haven't written one. Have you ever taken the time to put pen to paper and write down values, principles, morals, etc. that you would want to pass on to another generation? Whether that be your own children, your friend's children, perhaps you are an educator or a coach somewhere, and the types of things that you would want to pass on in a more formal sense than just saying words to people. Maybe you have, or maybe you should. And if you have, I'd love to see what you've, what you've written to put down and share it. So if you'd be willing to share it, I would love to see what kind of ethical will, maybe you've never framed it in those particular terms, but what kind of ethical will you've put together? Would you share that? I would love to see it, and I'd love to talk about it if, if you're willing to do so. But if you haven't, maybe you should. Maybe we all should. Maybe we should sit down. Maybe it's a worthwhile pursuit to sit down and put some principles and some values and some morals and some ethical considerations on paper for the next generation, whomever that may be. Examples of this, and this is why I say it's not as, it's not as rare as I might have originally thought, 
there are these types of things in print. Now, they're not in this beautiful flowery language the same way that, that Tibbins ethical will was to his son. But if you ever have read Randy Posh's last lecture or Walker Lamont's Rules for My Unborn Son, those two texts both contain lessons meant for future generations. Randy Posh, dying at the time of cancer, gave a lecture. And in that lecture, he talked about some of the things he wanted to pass down to his children. And it's immortalized forever online. Were his, were his children ever to wander a, a field, they could always circle back to and find that lecture and see what he, what he said to them when they were young children, when he was dying. And he made it into a book and, and on and on and on. Walker Lamont's Rules for My Unborn Son is right in the title. This is clearly somebody who has identified important things that they wish to pass on. So those are, in a sense, ethical wills. So today as we depart, the challenge is to both continue or start to read broadly and deeply. What is your library? Think about your library. Think about all the books that you own. Do you draw from that garden regularly? If not, you should. And secondly, do you have an ethical will? Have you put together an ethical will, whether you have children or not? The opportunity to pass that information down may come at the most surprising of times. But perhaps it's useful for you to take all of your hard-earned life lessons and distill them into a few words on a page so that somebody else can benefit from them. That's what Tibbin did, and I'm certainly grateful that he did, because it gave us the content for today's episode. So take it and do with it what you will, but as usual, I hope it challenges you to be a better version of yourself and to take on a new task that might be beneficial to you and also to others. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod, or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.